This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to the Known and Never podcast. I'm your host Natalie Bromley and joining me on the panel this week is regular contributor Robbie Kopak and special fan guest Mike Landers. Now Robbie, Mike and I are going to be discussing the latest instalment of Burnley's European adventure which saw the Clarets win at home to Istanbul to set up the third instalment of the qualifiers for the European group stages by setting up a playoff place against Olympiakos. We're also going to be looking at Burnley's opening fixture of the Premier League campaign at home with a defeat against Watford. After that, we're going to be bringing in Dave Roberts, our resident statistician, who's going to be looking at the head-to-head between Burnley and Greece teams. Might be a little spoiler there. We've not played Olympiakos. And we're also going to be looking away at Fulham. Now, this week marks the 200th episode of the Known and Never podcast, and we had intended to mark this in some way but it's only fitting that this show is instead dedicated to the greatest. Burnley Football Club today announced the sad, sad news that former player, champion and club legend Jimmy McElroy had passed away at the age of 86. He was widely regarded as the greatest player to ever pull on the Clariton blue shirt. He made Burnley his home and he touched generations of Clarets. There were those who were lucky enough to see him play and then there were those who just had his legend passed down to him. One supporter today contacted me to tell me how he used to work in the 110 club on a Thursday night for the free and easy night. Now, this fan never saw Jimmy play, but he was starstruck every time he walked into the room. He told me that fans used to approach the bar all excited and asking him, is that Jimmy Mack? He was an icon of our club and the thoughts and prayers of everyone at Known and Ever go out to his family and friends this evening. With all of the riches modern football has bestowed on our club, The people of Burnley are all a little poorer today. Rest in peace, Jimmy. So, Robbie, Mike, let's do what Jimmy Mack would have wanted us to do and brush ourselves down, get on with the show and dedicate our entire existence to everything Claret and Blue. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you very much. Great to be back. It is. Well, indeed, Mike, you are the second in our series of fan panellists, our special fan guests. But you, of course, have been on the podcast before. Mike, uh, for those regular listeners who may recall, joined us as part of our Kickstarter campaign, which we ran last season. Um, So he's a bit of a podcast pro now and and a special fan. and of course, we've also got regular contributor and co-host Robbie, uh, Robbie, who strangely has put a very strange typing of his surname into our Zencaster um, recording tonight. And I keep thinking that I'm going to say that out loud. So you see, we're, we're week two into the new team listeners and the team are already starting to try and trip me up. But uh, but let, let's get on with the show. And we're going to start on a positive. We're going to come back to the Watford game later on, but we're going to start at a special night underneath the Turf Moor floodlights with the Istanbul game. 
So, Robbie, let's come to you first. Um, Burnley, another fantastic European night, secured a playoff place for the Olympiacos game. But we actually had a very weakened squad in that Deitch made a few changes. And, and we saw one of the tweets that I think you put before the game in that there was a bit of a, a dilemma amongst some Burnley fans in that we they've been calling out for some squad depth for quite some time, but then are also quite concerned when Deitch feels what they perceive to be a weaker eleven. So... You know, what, you obviously had some thoughts about that. What did you make of the the, uh, the substitutes and the, the way that the team set out on Thursday night? I thought the changes were inevitable, to be honest. The only one that did surprise me was Charlie Taylor on the left-hand side. But when you actually look at the 11, it wasn't that weakened, in my opinion. The back four was still pretty strong. Like Kevin Long is, you know, he's been at, he's been at the club long enough. He played a lot of football last season. Ben Gibson come in, you know, he's had an England he had an England call up last year. You know, it's fifteen million pounds. You're gonna to have to like bring him in eventually. Stephen Ward's had lots of football, very experienced. And then everyone else on top of that, you'd look at Jeff Hendrick and Ashley Westwood are first names on team sheet now and we play with two strikers up front in Box and Barnes who were first teamers. So it wasn't that weak in my opinion. No, I th- I definitely agree with you, you there. I mean, I think Burnley fans are maybe so used to seeing us rotate the same eleven and, and really operating on, on a, a very small number of players that perhaps they have gone a bit into autopilot and just think that anybody who's not the starting eleven is a weakened team. But I agree. I, I was quite surprised when I saw that team selection that we had actually got ourselves to a situation where a second string side could be as strong as it was. And certainly that team that played um, on Thursday night was a lot stronger than some of the earlier um, teams that we fielded in the Premier League. And you know, certainly back in two thousand and nine, for example. Mike, I know you have some some views on on Taylor in midfield. I, I think that was probably my only disappointment for. Thursday night and I think my disappointment stems from a wider point about Burnley's I guess lack of cover in certain areas I mean we were in the Europa League on Thursday night we were in a prestigious European Cup and we were having to make do by playing a left back in in as a left-sided midfielder and, and surely we shouldn't still be at that stage. Well, the bit that got me wasn't the fact that we had Taylor and Ward on the left-hand side. It was more a case of they were the wrong way around. I looked at the lineup and I was surprised to see it. I thought it was a strong lineup overall. But the weird thing was having Charlie Taylor as left midfield and Stephen Ward as left back. Now, I've been a fan of, of Stephen Ward for a long, long time. And when he came over from Bohemians and joined Wolves, he was actually a striker. He was an attacker. He scored nearly one every four games when he was in Ireland, came over to Wolves, scored three in his first six games in the championship. His first Premier League goal was actually against Liverpool as a forward. So when I saw like Stephen Ward lined up before the game, I thought, left midfield, okay, fine. Yeah, great on the wing, giving us an attacking threat. But to see him as left back and Charlie Taylor as left midfield, I was kind of trying to work out what was going on. I was trying to work out what Dyche's thinking was because if he was trying to get through to the next round, then playing Ward at left back to shore up a defence and not concede the away goal, okay, I get that, no problem. And if Dyche is saying, we'll go for it, what will be, will be, we'll try and attack and if we concede, fair enough, then putting Ward at left midfield would have been the better attacking option. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't quite work it out. I mean, Taylor at left midfield was very strange. It didn't really work either because the pair of them didn't really have a chemistry. And and I, I'm not blaming either player for that because they you know, it's it's a very weird situation for them to be in. So I was I was kind of surprised, not so much at the the fact that the two were there, but the way they were lined up because we had a much better experienced attacking option, and we put in more in defence and put an experienced uh, defender in midfield. Never quite got round that, but. You know, we got away with it, I think, in the end. I, I agree with what Mike just said. Uh, I was just thinking then, with Long and Gibson being like a centre-back pairing and they've never played together before, maybe having Phil Bardsley and Stephen Ward, more experienced defenders, just each side of them, might just give them a little bit more protection rather than having Charlie Taylor as part of the back four who hasn't played a lot of football, might be a bit rusty defensively. That's just my thought on that. I don't disagree. I, I think that's a fair point. But either it's kind of felt to me like you either stick or twist in a game like that. It's a one-off, you've got the the risk of the away goal and so on and so forth. So either you're showing up the defence, at which point, to be honest, I think Charlie Taylor's the wrong choice at left midfield anyway, or you just say, we go for it and, and see what happens. 
Um, I can completely understand your, your point on that, but it just felt a little bit like going for it and then backing off at the last minute. Yeah, so that's quite interesting stuff there. I think it's maybe it's just maybe it's just been felt a little bit weird with like you say having those players out of position. But I do think Robbie's point about giving the the, the back to um two centre halves a bit more of a, of comfort would probably have been a very sensible idea. Um Robbie, I was about to come on to to, to Long and Gibson actually. I thought they had a fantastic game, the pair of them, considering that, that was their debut game as a new centre half duo. They looked solid. They actually looked like they really complemented each other's game as well. And we've suddenly now got ourselves a double backup for, for Tarkey and, and Ben Mee. Yeah, I thought I thought Gibson was outstanding to be honest. Just to pretty much throw himself in in a, a pretty difficult game. I thought he was very comfortable on the ball. He come out with to play out from the back, which was really good. And I, I think that again, going back to Kevin Long, I think that was probably his best performance in a Burnley shirt. There's a few fans who are not sure on him, but I think every time he's come in, he's always been very consistent. And for a defender to come in and out, in and out, in and out on a regular basis, I think it's a very difficult position to cover. But he's always consistent. He never really lets anyone down. And uh, I think he, he got a call up for the Ireland team last year too. So he's he's definitely a very good cover for us. Yeah, I was really impressed. I, I completely share that view. Mike, what did you think of, of Hart? Obviously, he's now keeping that number one shirt, his all for the time being that was three clean sheets in the bounce for, for Joe Hart and, and from what I I believe I thought he put in a man in the match performance um, what was your view? I, I had him down as man of the match I was absolutely delighted and have been delighted with it as a signing um, have been since day one I know it's a very weird situation he's walking into and especially as fans because we have fan favourites as well and he's, he's possibly displacing them but I think he was absolutely superb I think he was uh, solid without being spectacular. He did the job, which is kind of like a very Deitch thing. You know, you do the job. And uh, I think Joe Hart made several superb saves, um, especially right at the very end. Um, I don't think he got enough credit for that. And it's kind of a weird thing watching him play for Burnley because <laughs> it is. He's, well, it's, it's two things. He's, he, you know, first off, he's playing for Burnley, and that's an ex-England number <laughs> one keeper. You know, 12 months ago, he was England's number one. He was going to go to the World Cup. But the other thing as well is there's a little bit of a, an unfairness that you can feel in the stands is that he comes with a little bit of a reputation of making a mistake every so often. And we as fans seem to project that worry onto him. He's not shown at any point that he's going to make a mistake or anything like that. Absolutely the opposite. But every time a shot comes in, you can feel a sort of certain section of fans going, oh, oh this is where he's going to mess up. He's shown absolutely no sign of that, and we're looking yeah, for no, fans. We're hasn't. looking for errors that aren't there, uh, yeah, or other goalies to get away. But I think he's been superb, absolutely. Yeah, super. really has. Um, I, I definitely think that 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 is a, a, a wide minority. I would certainly maybe, maybe we sit in very different um, areas of turf more, but I, from certainly from the area that I sit in, he's got a lot of support in the fans and people are really really willing him to do well. Robert, second. Thursday, uh, second Thursday night home European game that we've had to go to extra time to see a game out. Probably not ideal, giving this, well, I guess, the perceived small um, squad that we have and also the very early stage of the season. I kind of thought that they came through it all right. I think my only fitness concerns in that extra time was poor Charlie Taylor, who'd been running around in midfield in a position he wasn't used to. And I honestly feared at one point his poor legs were going to buckle underneath him. But other than that, I thought we looked like we'd not still broken into a sweat by the time that extra time had finished. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought we were in second gear for large parts of the game. And I thought, certainly after we'd scored, I thought we were really, really good. It looked like a bit of confidence had come back into the side and we just had those little bit of extra legs that Istanbul didn't have. I'm not sure whether age difference might have played a factor. I, I think I, I'm guessing our midfield would have been slightly younger than, than theirs because he had Emre in midfield who's about 38 and Gokhan Inlu's an experienced midfielder. But you could definitely see that we looked a lot fitter and a bit had that edge about us to make us make sure we saw the game through. And then, of course, in, in this, this very fit and sharp extra time that we had, we had the one and only Jack Cork, who appears to be turning himself into a European striker rather than, than a, a holding midfielder that, that we know and love. Um, Mike, it was a cracking goal, wasn't it? And uh, I think we deserved it. I think by the time the goal scored, we were very much on top. And I think on the balance of play, Burnley were the deserved winners, weren't they? 
I, I would agree with that. I think we were certainly the much better side in extra time. I think our reputation preceded us a little bit as well. In the Istanbul, you could see that kind of the heads dropping as as the chances weren't really coming and, and Hart was great and Long and Gibson were great. And by the time the goal arrived, you know, Clarets were, were on top and I thought we kind of saw the game out quite well, actually. From there, I was expecting a bit more of an onslaught from, from Adebayor and, and co. But I was very impressed with the, the way they played through extra time. And the goal, and I've seen it, and I'm like most Clarets fans, I must have rewound it 50 times just watching it. The one thing it reminds me of is Scotty Arfield away at Blackburn. That hovering around the D and the one-time pass up into the top corner, you know, he could have blasted it. He could have, you know, he could have hit Rosette, but oh, did he ever pick out that corner? It was absolutely gorgeous. And yeah, the extra time, the fitness. Just a point on that, today's Guardian said, tiredness from midweek trips cannot be ruled out, nor can the hours lost in training and preparation. Oh, don't even get me started on that. Where was this long midweek trip to? South Manchester? Yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll come on to that, Mike, when we discuss the the Watford game, but that's been my bugbear this week. uh, I've fallen out with far too many people about this type of conversation, but let's move (laughs) on to that for Watford. Robbie, just a very quick one to finish off on the goal. I'm not entirely sure that Jeff Hendricks got enough credit for his role in that goal. He never gets enough credit. He's a bit of a scapegoat on our side for some reason. You know, he's a square play playing in a round hole, and I've always said with Jeff Hendricks, what doesn't help is that a lot of people just expect players to play in that number 10 role and to just bend the ball into the top corner every time he gets the ball. And that's not really his role in the side. I think his hold-up play in that area is really good and it showed, it showed on Thursday night. Yeah, it really did. I mean, God, we, we must have debated Jeff Hendricks' role in this team for many and many of episodes. And it, it's really frustrating for him at the moment. And I think certainly um, until Defoe comes back in the side anyway. Or it just it, there just doesn't seem to be a role for him and I'm, I'm frustrated for him. So officially on the Known and Ever podcast, we are giving Jeff Hendrick the credit that he has not yet been given for his role in Jack Hawke's winner to get us through to the European playoffs. Sticking with you, Robbie, just one final point. I was quite interested to hear Sean Dyche talk after the game about the character of some of these European sides and the way they conduct themselves I think he gave an example of how how focused his players were and how they were listening to him in the build-up to the extra time, whereas the Istanbul players were all over the place, rolling around the floor and just not really paying attention. And he just talked about that level of respect in your own side and, sorry, that respect in your own play and that respect for your manager and your other players. We've got a very different, I guess, kettle of fish that we're dealing with with European football. I just wonder whether a side like Burnley, who are grafters and who are honest players, can they thrive in European football with this, I guess, penchant for flair in Europe? Mm, I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's one of those, isn't it? I'm not sure if we are that honest, to be honest. Like when, you, when you think about Ashley Barnes, when he's going to hold the ball up, he always falls down to the <laughs> yeah. point. Apart from Ashley Barnes. <laughs> no, it's, it's part of our, our game, but we're not like rolling on the floor pretending to be injured. That's the difference. And uh, it might be something we might have to adapt to if we go further on in the competition, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. Indeed. I'd love to, I can't wait to see Ashley Barnes uh, go further on and go toe to toe with some of these uh, European players if we get that far. And of course, till we get that far, we have to get past a small matter of a two legged playoff tie with Olympiakos. Now, there's been some suggestion this week that Olympiakos aren't quite the side that they used to be, which has obviously jinxed us all listeners. Thanks for that. But there's no doubting that this is a, a the glamour European away tie that we all wanted when we first qualified for Europe. It's it's a, a team with pedigree in the European competition. It's a, a ground that's easy to get to. And it's, it's a country that's, I guess, in some people, their view, a safe country to go on and see the Clarets away in Europe. So we're expecting quite a lot of fans to make their way over to Greece for a bit of late summer sunshine this weekend. But who, what I want to know from you two, and this is a very, I want a one word answer to start off with. Robbie, can we beat them? No. Mike? No. Oh, for goodness sake. I mean, I'm going to put a caveat on that. I'm going to put a caveat on that. I assume you're talking about the away leg. No, I, I meant over two legs. I didn't oh, mean over two legs. Over two legs, yeah. Yeah, will we get through to the group stages? I think we can. And it's based basically on, I think, the, the club, sort of uh, the way Deitch has approached Europe. He approached Aberdeen as pre-season and he put the first team out 
and uh, against Aberdeen as pre-season miles on the legs. I think he approached Istanbul with what will be, will be, and we got through there. I think that he should, I think he might, approach the Olympiacos tie as if we get in the group stages, that gets us game time for the players who are injured, like Defoe and Brady and uh, Vidra. Um, I think it gets his game time for Long and Gibson. So I think that he's looking at this as an opportunity to rotate the squad more and give the new guys and the injured guys some game time. I think our grafting quality, as you called it, I think that can surprise some teams in Europe. There is a very European style. And, you know, it is sometimes, you know, we'll call it a little tippy-tappy, a little throw themselves on the ground and so on and so forth. Burnley's style is very, very suited to disrupting that. I think, you know, Basekshia here found that out the hard way. You know, long ball, all that stuff where they're complaining about it. I think Olympiacos are going to do the same thing. I think we may well come away from Greece with a goal deficit, and I'd be happy with that. If we came back with a 2-1 defeat, I'd be absolutely delighted because we got in the way of goal. I think if it's if we come home to the turf, either a goal behind or level, I really do fancy our chances for the second leg. I really do. But at the end of the day, it depends on what the manager's focus is. Personally, I hope and I think he, I think he wants to win it. I think he wants to get through that group. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I understand the concerns between balancing Premier League survival and doing well in Europe. But for me, this is the key fixture of the, of the European qualifiers. And this is our chance to get into the Europa League group stages. And I think he has to take it. I understand fully that we probably can't have both. We probably can't aim to finish top 10 um, certainly not seventh in the Premier League and do well in Europe in one season. It's maybe come a little bit too soon for us. But if you asked me now if I would take 15th, 16th in the Premier League and a good run at Europe, then I would happily snap your hand off for that. I think this is a chance that we've been given as a reward for our hard work last season. And let's be realistic here. We're not sure when this opportunity is going to come round again. And it would be absolutely criminal, in my opinion, to not take advantage of that. And I think as well, is there really that much difference between finishing 10th in the Premier League and finishing 15th? Yes, there's an escalation of prize money, but given that the vast majority of our prize money comes from TV rights and not from uh, places where you finish in the league, it's probably not going to make a massive difference if we you know, finish a little bit further down the table as long as we survive and we don't get relegated. So to me, he has to go for it. One last thing on the um, Europa League before we move on to Watford. I was very surprised leaving Turf Moor on Thursday to turn the radio on and hear the fixtures come out for the early Caribou Cup, the League Cup games. And I was like, oh, who did we get? And then our name wasn't mentioned. And this is going to sound ridiculous, listeners, but I honestly got such a buzz of excitement when I realised that we were not drawn in the early stages of the League Cup because we're in Europe. So for some reason, it had just not struck me. And it was a very, very nice feeling to to realise that we're just hanging around with the big boys now and not going in the early stages of the League Cup. So let's let's move on away from Istanbul and Europe now and concentrate on matters of domestic leagues. And that would be Burnley's opening home fixture at home to Watford, which didn't go exactly to plan. Before this episode, we talked to Watford fan um, to get their view on the game. And so we welcome John from the Rookery End podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I imagine you were probably in a bit of a better mood than we are. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go with that. I mean, two, two wins <laughs> is, is, is a good place to be. But we're not in Europe, so we don't have the, the lovely tans I'm sure you got from your trip overseas. Yeah, we, we went to, Ed, to Aberdeen first. We didn't get a tan from well, that's, Aberdeen. That's more of a, a wind <laughs> tan, I think you get in. <laughs> wind burn, yeah. for sure. Um, let's dive straight into the game. Obviously, we've got a couple of things that, that we've been dissecting. I think we very much are going to be looking at this as a game of two halves. The first half, I thought the Clarets played really, really well. I um, was really pleased at half time and a little bit worried, not worried, but 
a little bit annoyed that we weren't ahead by half time, but the second half was clearly a very different kettle of fish. One of the things we are going to touch on, which I'd like to get your views on, is the incident at the end of the first half, which wasn't really an incident for me until I heard Daisha's post-match interview. The tackle on Stephen Ward by Will Hughes was perceived by Daisha to be an absolute red card and quite a dangerous tackle. Um, what's your take on that? Well, it, it wasn't, I don't think. There's lots of things, factors going on with a tackle like that. Uh, the wet, the fact he goes off the pitch, there's a bit of astroturf there, and there's, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's a million things. But, you know, Will's not that sort of player. I mean, if, if it was Holobas doing it, I would have been, I'd have been saying, yeah, probably he was. He did have an intent there to do something, but it wasn't. And my thing goes back to, you know, we've known Sean a long time at Watford, and he often sort of does sort of a go at refs. He did it with with us. And I particularly thought he, he went heavy for it after losing a game. And it was, you know, was there a little bit of uh, trying to play around? You know, we've, I've, you know, I've got to meet Sean a few times when he was Watford manager and he's, a, you know, he's a fantastic fella. You know, he's so uh, welcoming and he's great and he's entertaining. Uh, we see him at these, comes back to Watford to some some shows talking about old Watford times uh, at our local theatre. And, and he's the, the absolute star. You know, he is the one who, who talks about it. And it does feel a little bit, you know, very different, Sean, when, when he's lost a game of football. But no, it, it's, that you know, we have seen a couple of incidents already in the in the Premier League, that one with uh, with Everton and, and Wolves. And you think, well, is it or isn't it? But that just seemed to be a little bit out of control. But I don't think that was a, 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 a player being out of control. That was more of a situation being out of control. Yeah, I think I'd probably agree with that, actually. And we, we're going to come on to it on the show in a, in a short while. But I think my views were very much that it was a yellow card. I remember thinking at the time, I was just more concerned that he was just going to give him a talking to rather than a booking. I think it was a booking, but I certainly didn't think at the time it was a red card. I suspect maybe Daisha's frustrations were born very much out of seeing a, quite an uncharacteristic side display from, from his team in that second half. And we just didn't react quick enough to your speed and tempo that your guys had dictated, I don't think, to the game. And also, we didn't really react to going 3-1 down. We just threw the towel in and, and didn't really want to claw our way back into it. Always the most disappointing thing is when a former player scores against you. And Andre Gray is a very polarising figure amongst Burnley fans. There are those who strongly dislike the guy and there are some others who can appreciate what he did for us in terms of getting us promotion to the Premier League and winning the championship. But I don't think there's many fans out there that have got genuine love for him. So we are always interested to see how our former players do. And I'm not sure it's been a smooth start for him at Watford, but how is he settling in? It hasn't been smooth at all. I think partly that comes down to, you know, he's he was played not say, you know, why, why did yesterday work so well? Why did the, the week before work so well? Well, you know, when has Andre played well? It's been when he's played with a big fella. And when he's playing with Deeney, it is where they both work very well. Deeney, again, when's he done when played well? When he's been playing with a, a little pacey fella. And and it's it's obvious to, to, to most people, but he never got that chance to really play that way. At the beginning of last season, we were had an amazing midfield of Nathaniel Chalabar, Tom Keverley and uh, Abdel Decore, who you saw yesterday. And, and that sort of fell apart when when uh, Nathaniel got uh, injured and then when Tom Cleverley got injured. So I don't think he was necessarily... The, the new system he was sort of building up to, let's say, just fell apart quite quickly. And he did need a lot of transition because he isn't the most skillful player in the world. He has a terrible first touch. And it, 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 the season just didn't really get, didn't quite get going for him. Uh, there a little bit of you know, when he did score goals, you know, putting his his hand to his ear. So what for fans? You're going stop listening to the people on Twitter, will you? And just sort of understand that we we know how football works and how you. He's a big runner, and he you know he does a lot of off the ball work, even if he isn't scoring the goals. So this year has been good. Definitely feels better. He feels different, and his attitude seemed a bit different. Um, and what I like about that goal, particularly, it just seemed to be a bit more of a, a reactive goal because he isn't again that clever footballer. You, you sometimes see him thinking too much. Like there was a, a one ball came over, came over, you know, uh, to him at the far post, and it, it hit his shin and sort of goes went off. He could you know could have scored a, a belting of a goal, but that moment as the ball travels over, you know, he's probably going to think about it a bit too much, and that's where he sort of falls apart. I think. So he is, yeah, I think we're probably in the same place about Andre Gray. He probably has to score at least 15, 20 goals, I think, to, to get anywhere up in, in our love of him, let's say. Yeah, it's, it's, a, difficult, it's a difficult character to, to really get 
to grips with. But, you know, I'm, I'm always a, a fan of, of people. If they graft, if they work hard and if they try and prove themselves, then I will support them regardless of, of, of what they've done in the past. And I think you really hit the nail on the head then. You were talking about his reactions and his cupping his ears to the, the fans and stuff. You just think, you know what, just just get your head on the game and, and play. So certainly from what we saw on, on Saturday, it looks like he's in a good place. And it's quite interesting to hear you talk about him and Dini because, of course, his more successful spell with us was when he was playing with Sam Bucks, And that's a very similar dynamic. So, yeah, you, I mean, you looked great on Saturday, depressingly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You had a, a challenging season last year in parts, um, a bit stop-start in places and perhaps maybe didn't get as high up the table as you would have liked. What are your hopes for this season? What do you think you'll do? Uh, well, let's say every single Premier League we've had, season we've had in the Premier League, has been um, a season of two halves. Uh, we've often started quite well and we've absolutely fallen apart, literally absolutely fallen apart in the second half of the season. Last year was a little bit more obvious. Uh, Everton come knocking at the door in November for for, for Marco um, Silva and that threw a lot of things off. Um, not just you know him not investing his time and effort in, but also it just threw a lot of the... The characters off and 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 Javi when he came in was was doing a job to you know to solve it and, and to put some plasters over some some sores so we hopefully with him being the first manager we've had in the Premier League who ended the season had a pre-season start of the next season uh, that we can hopefully get some things a bit more bedded in uh, he knows those players a bit better and he knows how to use them uh, a lot better like you say Andre Gray last year he, he found a player that was out of sorts and down on his luck and, and you know that can be quite a big thing to turn around but that seemed to have you know reset itself this year and the same with Troy as well so our hopes are that he can can be around and we can just be consistent I don't mean like let's you know get to 40 points any quicker or, or safety any quicker but you know I just want that sort of feeling of win win draw Lose, lose, win, draw, win, win. You know, they're just a mixture of things. It just we seem to have massive phases uh, to our season. So a bit of consistency, and you know, we, you know, if if Leicester can do it, and if you can do what you did, you've done, then 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 maybe one of us could do something good. But that's we're going to dream that. We're not going to be uh, planning <laughs> for that quite yet. I love that though. If Leicester can do it, well, I can't remember. I think it's. I, I genuinely think it's fantastic that in the la, in the modern day Premier League, Leicester have won the Premier League and Burnley have qualified for Europe. It just gives because it's it's a hard grind as a Premier League when you're not one of the top six and then seven with Everton. Literally, any three of thirteen sides can go down. We nearly lost Southampton last season, and they were nowhere near tipped for relegation at the beginning of the season. West Ham are going to struggle again this season, and and. If you just have a bad spell, or like you say, that very stop-start um, run of games, you can easily find yourself being sucked into it. So if you can just have one season where it's not just about surviving, it's not just about getting to 17th and see how high you can get up, but you can thrive and do something like a title or Europe, it's it's got to be good for the league. John, thank you so much for joining us. That has been really great insight. I'm going to ask you to give us one final thing before you leave, and I'm going to ask as many away fans as we can this season. We don't expect you to be an expert. We don't expect you to have a particularly informed decision. But ignoring the second half on Saturday, on Sunday, gut instinct, where will the Clarets finish? I My gut instinct is I think you're going to be battling to the end. But I think the the thing that I still don't know is is where do you go with this Europe thing? The fact that you guys haven't signed what you would call extensive numbers to cope with that. I think there'll be a point where it, I, I yesterday was second half was, you know, that, that, that very draining uh, extra time that you had. Um, it wasn't just an extra time in the League Cup. It was an extra time in Europe. So that's where I felt that w- was where we could sort of really start shining and, and on the front foot. So if you don't go in any further in Europe, then I think you'll be just a bit below where you were last year. But I still think if you do, you're going to be fighting on on two fronts. And I think for the the numbers that you brought in, it's going to be really hard for you. See, there you go, listeners. That is that is the Watford fans' view. Um, so that's been John from the Rookery End podcast. Thank you so much, John, and best of luck for the rest of the season. And you guys. So, Robbie Mike, obviously, we, we've just had the views there of, of the Watford fan as to what he, what, the, what he thought of the game. 
not a great day at the office, if we're brutally honest here. And I think it's it's quite fair to say that that was a classic game of two halves. It ended up being a very disappointing, I guess, result at home. You, you, you want to get off to a good start at home. Robbie, let's come to you first. It was such an early goal to concede. I think it was around three minutes. But even so early in the game, it looked so, so obvious that that goal was coming. Uh, Watford just started the game at 100 miles an hour and we just didn't look like we'd, we'd got going. Yeah, I agree with that. There was a We had a slight scare just before Gray scored. I think Gray had a little opening about a minute or so beforehand and I thought that was going to be the wake-up call and it wasn't. I was actually quite pleased, actually, because I put a fiver on Andre Gray to score first, so I'm rolling in it now. That's what you get for booing your top your former top goal scorer. Like you're just gonna get punished. I thought after after Watford went ahead, I thought we were really good. I think the performance was really positive. I thought, thought we played some really good football. I thought we similar to the first half at Southampton, just the way we passed the move. I thought uh we talked about Jeff Hendrick before. I thought he was outstanding in the first half. And then we just missed chance after chance after chance. And then we, I don't know what what was said at half time, but we started so slowly again and ultimately it cost us. Yeah. I mean, let, let's stick with that first half analysis then. I mean, the Clouts were, were very, very lucky, I think, to get back into the game straight away. And it was a fantastic corner by, by well, it was a fantastic corner by uh, Goodmanson and, and Tarky got a really good header on it. So you think at that stage, we're only five minutes into the game and, and the Clouts have have got themselves level and you almost think, okay, shall we start that one again? And yeah, Robbie, you're absolutely right. I thought in that first half we were absolutely fantastic. Mike, I think Robbie hit the nail on the head there in that we were creative, we were very direct and we did try and get ourselves a a good opportunity to get to go ahead. But we were just missing that ruthlessness up front where we just couldn't seem to put the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, I mean, part of it I think was formation. Chris Wood got a fair bit of stick, but I think he wasn't getting much service. I'm kind of. I, I think I was in a minority. I could see that second half coming during the first half. To me, there was a, a sort of a lack of commitment, a lack of. It, it seemed to be coming a little bit easy. On re- on reflection, I think that equaliser was probably the worst thing that could have happened because it happened too quick. You're absolutely right that even though Watford scored after three minutes, it had been coming for that three minutes, and it was completely self-inflicted. Uh, yeah, but getting back on equal terms through what was a very good goal, to, to compare it to old goals of the past, to me, it just uh, for, for clients of a certain age like myself, it was like watching John Pender again scoring from corners in Division 4. But it was a self-inflicted start. Getting back onto level terms like that meant they got away with it. And up front, yeah, we were absolutely creating. We really were. But there were several occasions where the back four were a little complacent, I thought. Tarky was, yeah, he scored a, a great goal, but he was so far out of position for Andre Gray's goal. Him and Ben Mee were were absolutely not on the same wavelength, I thought. And you could kind of see it, but it was kind of we were kind of getting away with it because we created some great chances. Uh, Goodmanson's free kick, Lennon uh, was was I don't know what he has to do to score in a competitive game because he has had so many chances and he bounced off defenders or last ditch tackles or whatever. But I honestly. When we went in at the end of the first half, I was kind of like, this isn't ending 1-1 and I've no idea which way it's going to go. Yeah, it, it's disapp- it is really disappointing, really. And, and I think we have learned our lesson a lot from from the seasons that we've, we've spent consecutively in the Premier League to try and take your chances and make sure you get your noses in front when you want to. So I think whilst we've got some lessons to learn and some work to do around... I guess ruthlessness and desire, you know, converting those chances into into goals. Um, I'm not going to lose sight of the fact that I thought there were some absolutely fantastic performances in that first half. Robbie, for me, the two absolute stands out standouts were Jeff Hendrick and Ashley Westwood. Um, number one, do you agree with those two? And number two, was there any others who really stood out for you? I agree with those two, and I put Jack Cork in there as well. I thought Jack Cork got in behind a fair few times. I can't figure who the left back was. He were Holobas, I think. In the first half, he, I thought Cork were getting in behind in the channels quite a fair bit. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Did you did anybody particularly stand out for you? 
he doesn't get the plaudits I don't think he he deserves for for his work rate. But I thought Aaron Lennon had a strong strong mm, first. Yeah, half. I do too. I've been really surprised by him. I thought he was going to be a fairly floaty winger, you know, tricky and all that kind of thing. But to me, his the work rate he does, the link up play he does, the chances he gets to, I thought. He was very good, very good on Sunday. Yeah. Cork as yeah, well. Me too. Yeah. Westwood, absolutely. Absolutely. I've been. No, he's a class time. player. So he reminds me of Joey, does does Westwood. I feel like we've just replaced Joey Bottom with Westwood. He's a very similar player to me. Agree. Joey um, without the edge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think Westwood's got oh, a bit yeah, of an edge. edge uh, without the Joey Bart of it. Joey Bart. <laughs> edge. There's edges and then there's Joey Barton edges. The last thing then on the first half before we. we try and dissect so we'll go into a bit of therapy for the second half performance listeners but the big talking point according to Deitch which I didn't actually think was a talking point until I heard Deitch's post-match interview so I think you probably get a, a feeling for where I sit on this but Deitch claims that Will Hughes's tackle on Stephen Ward was um, shocking and should have been a red card which would of course seen them down to 10 men and Will Hughes not on the pitch to enable him to score the third goal I can't see this, Daesh. I'm sorry. I do love to support you as much as I can, but I've looked at it a few times and I remember seeing the tackle at the time and I remember thinking in my head, come on, ref, that's a yellow. That's got to... I mean, it was more of a case of don't let that go with just a talking to you. That, that's got to be a yellow card as that. And never in my mind did I think that it was a red on the time, at the time, sorry. And I have watched it back now and I, I think if you play it at a certain angle sped up or slowed down and kind of manipulate the footage to how you want it to you can put the arguments in there that it could have been a red but my view is that it was a yellow Robert red or yellow I thought it was a red at the time and I still think it's a red now are we going to go a whole season you're the new James Bird you're never going to agree with me on anything um Mike red or yellow 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 um yes. I've seen it I've seen it in slow motion six or seven times. I could have seen an argument for a red in because I've seen it six or seven times in slow motion. At the time, it was yellow. I have no complaints to the referee saying it was yellow because he only gets to see it once. Yeah. It, to me, that was a yellow. It, the weird thing was it was such an unnecessary tackle. It, I just yeah, it really was. I, I don't understand yeah, why I get he that. did it. Um, yeah, I, I, especially so close to half time as well, and yeah. the ball's going out of play. Maybe that's what some of those factors are. What Darch is putting on there as um, as as a contributing factor for a red. I think I saw on match the day two, Paul Ince said it should be an orange. <laughs> I think that just reminds me of why I stopped listening to Paul Ince quite some time yeah, ago. That's, that's always the so, best. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So come on, we're going to have to do it. You know, take a deep breath, panel. We're going to have to dip into the debacle that was the second half. Now, this is not going to be comfortable. It was, quite frankly, an absolute disaster. The Clarets didn't come out in the second half. Um, Deitch warned them, he said, that they needed to be sharp from the off and they were anything but sharp. Conceded two frighteningly sloppy goals by our own standards. But then, disappointingly, didn't react to going 3-1 behind. So, where do we even start? Robbie, the first goal, the Deeney goal. I mean, I can't. I'm going to give their their foot. I don't forgive me. I can't. I didn't write down who it was who put that ball through to Deeney because I thought it was an absolutely oh. fantastic ball. Thank you. Um, it was a fantastic ball through. But no matter how many times you look at it, our defence looked fast asleep. I tell you, it's not often you'll see a Burnley side sort of kind of lose a discipline and, and capitulate. Like capitulate's probably the wrong word, but to concede two sloppy goals like that in such quick succession is really disappointing. It reminded me of, I think we lost 3-0 at home to Spurs last season. And that first half after Daly Alley got the penalty, we started a bit like that, where it was just, it was like the players just lost their heads for five, ten minutes and we just didn't really get back into the game after that. No, we didn't. And then to make matters worse, a few minutes later, we somehow lose possession from our throwing. I'm not really sure what Westwood was thinking there. And albeit a fantastic strike by Hughes, um, I thought it was at heart was very just, he just didn't have a chance, I don't think, to pick that. But again, they just they just took so long to react to going two one behind. And you know, while the game's two one, you can dig deep and you can get yourself back into the game, but I just, I'm struggling to comprehend just how badly they concentrated when they'd already gone two one behind um, Mike to, to then 
be so sloppy from our throwing and end up conceding a goal of that magnitude? I tell you, it gets worse and worse every time you look at it. There's a little trick I have. Uh, well, it's not really a trick. If you watch the highlights from Turf Moor of any game, you will see that stripes on the pitch. Each stripe is six yards because that's how you know where it's a 20-yard or a 24-yard or whatever. I've re-watched that Will Hughes goal. He runs over 18 yards completely unchallenged from inside our half. When he shoots, Ben Mee is still five yards off him. So he's run so far, completely unchallenged, and still is unchallenged. And somehow Ben Mee just throws himself to the ground. And, you know, you can't blame Joe Hart. He got beat by an absolute rocket. And and I'd be still screaming at my defenders if I was Joe Hart. But even then, going behind was just... They they just turned around and just went, "Eh, well, seems like it's not happening. You know, Tarky again, was out of position. Now, it doesn't help when Loughton gives the ball away, uh, but Tarky was well out of position for the second goal. Him and me were just wellying the ball out of defence anywhere. Now, I know we get criticised for playing long ball a lot, and it's justifiable, but usually it's got purpose and direction. And they weren't. They were just smacking it anywhere. The body language wasn't great. You know, I, I don't think Ben Mee was being his, his usual imperious self all season yet either. Um, I think his passing radar really needs an MOT right now. It just felt, I, I know Rob was saying the word capitulate. It wasn't quite a capitulate. It just felt complacent. It really did. It kind of felt a little bit like a team that had gone, you know what, we've beaten Aberdeen. We've beaten Istanbul. We're in the Europa League and we've got a point away at Southampton and it could have been three. Watford haven't won, even scored away from home for seven games. Eh, we should be okay. You know, and we, oh yeah, we also conceded in the first minute or third minute and we got away with it. So we're going to be fine. I don't think Watford were any great shakes, but they really didn't have to be. And the relentlessness and the the other buzzwords that Deitch always uses to to describe the team and with justification just was not there. It, It felt complacent and it felt a little... No strong chin. Uh, the 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 uh, metaphor. Uh, no strong jaw. No, not a strong chin. <laughs> no it felt strong like jaw. A, yeah. it felt like a reed in the wind. There you go. I got my metaphor. Yeah, it's a reed in the wind. Yeah. That's how it felt. It really did. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too concerned at the moment. Number one, we're just um, reinforcing this bizarre stat that Sean Dyche's Burnley sides just lose every opening home fixture in every single season. I think last season we lost to West Brom and that turned out okay. So I'm not too concerned there. We've also got to bear in mind, listeners, that we've still got Robbie Brady and Stephen Defoe to come back and how we are missing them at the moment. And we're also, when he's Dyche fit in about February, I expect we've got Vidra to come in as well. So... It's it's a challenge at the moment because we've got key creative players missing from the side. We've got um, most of our first team are fit and they're the ones who will do the grafting and they're the ones that will um, really push to, 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 you know, to keep the defence solid and, and grind us out a result. But the, the key injuries we've got are our flair. So let's not be too concerned, Clarets. We will be fine. Uh, we've got we've had our glitch for this mission. Uh, we get to go away to Fulham next week and put things right against a side who haven't had the best of starts to their Premier League life. So we're going to end the Watford analysis with just um, hope for the future that everything's going to be all right. And with that in mind, we're going to introduce back into the show resident statistician and our, I guess, everybody's favourite stats man, Dave Roberts. Dave, welcome back. It's nice to have you again, second week running, with our, all of our stats and our heads-to-head and all of the information that we need for the next couple of weeks. I'll try my best, Natalie. You certainly will. Well, let's start with, we'll follow the same format that the show did. Uh, we start off by talking about the Europa League and the um, Istanbul game to, to obviously set up the, the two-legged Olympiakos game for the playoffs. Now, I'm assuming you're going to tell me there's not an awful lot of head-to-head stats out there between Burnley and Olympiacos. Well, we've never played them, so yeah, it's going to be a, a short feature to this one. But I did, <laughs> I did, I did prepare that uh, there's a couple of other um, interesting stats that we can look at. Um, Burnley haven't actually played in Greece before. I actually did some oh, wow. research recently going back. Well, I say research, I was actually looking at the information in the Clarets Chronicles book, but trying to get the information online. So I've actually got a report on there now which looks at all Burnley's non-competitive matches, including all friendlies, going back to 1946. And looking at those games, there's only one game Burnley have played against a Greek side, which was PAOK Salonika 
who they played in 2000. What a great name. Yeah, 2005, when Steve Cottrell was manager, we had, I think it was a like a training camp out in Austria, and they were one of the teams we uh, we, we played. So that's the only experience I think we have of, of playing a Greek side, unless there's anything pre-war. I don't think there is. I had a quick glance back, didn't see anything. But certainly we had that one game in 2005, but no matches in Greece until this week. Wow, that is a short feature. That's about a minute long. Of, of, listeners, I'm really sorry if you tuned in this week to get uh, our head-to-head stats on, on Gre- although, Grecian glory. <laughs> although, although we can can look at the other uh, competitive European games we've played. Oh, yes, um, please do. We've, we've um, played eight previous matches in European competitions. That's obviously the 60-61 European Cup and then the Intercities Fairs Cup in 1966-67. And the... Well, the good news or the bad news, depending on how you look at it, is that Burnley have only won one of those games. They won 3-1 at Lausanne Sports. But they only lost twice. We lost both of the away legs in the European Cup campaign. But the other Fairs Cup ones were all draws. So if you look back at the entire record, those eight matches, obviously including the Aberdeen and Istanbul games, it's uh, played eight, won one, drawn five and lost two. Oh, wow. I was going to say, actually, that our drawing record in Europe is probably going to fit well with us, given that we've uh, we've had to go so many draws this game. Well, a draw, so... a draw wouldn't be a bad result, particularly a, a, a score draw. That would no, be, it wouldn't. Uh, oh, be, no, exactly. Yeah, it really will. So that's that's kind of exciting, you know. There's there's not an awful lot out there, but we've managed to close some kind of of European fixtures. I've so it. you know, you have rescued it. I'm very impressed, Dave. But let's give us, you know, let's give us some positive news. Let's. Tell us, Dave, please tell us that we're going to win away at Craven Cottage. Well, it's a shame we're not playing at Turf Moor, really, because uh, we have a really good record against Fulham at at Turf Moor. You've got to go all the way back to the early 1950s. I think it's like 31 matches since Fulham won at Turf Moor, but uh, away from home, as you would expect, teams don't have quite as good a record. We don't have a, a, a bad record at Fulham. I think we've had 11 victories overall out of 46 matches but there are a lot fewer and far between in terms of the uh, the away wins that uh, that Burnley have had at uh, at Craven Cottage you're not really playing by the brief here Dave I was telling you I was, you know I was, I was giving you directions here I was trying to tell you tell me we're going to win but it's not well, looking we won, that we won way, last time out last time we played we uh, we, we won 3-2 it was a, a hard-fought match we went ahead then went 2-1 down and won 3-2 it was a midweek match you may remember Sam Vogt scored twice, got a penalty, and Andre Gray when was was that the game that the Ben Mee chant started? It could have been. I think it could was have, certainly around that time. I yes. think it was the the Snow White and Seven Dwarves Ben Mee chant. It was because I remember the Non and Ever team went down to Fulham. Yep. I do remember now. Jamie Jamie Smith will be very excited when he sees this section. When he, he yeah, the Tuesday night match. So you, so you see actually. Yes, it was. I do remember that game. It was. It was definitely the start of the Ben Mee chant. So that sounds positive. You know, I think, I feel like, we, you know, Fulham haven't really had the start to the season that they would have wanted, have they? So, you know, we should keep, you know, keep them down a little bit more and get our season off to a flat Having said that, going back prior to that match, um, Burnley had been nine matches without a win at Fulham. So um, oh. you've got to actually go back to 1980. <sighs> Uh, for the victory prior to that, Brian Laws was actually on the uh, score sheet in Eric Potts when Brian oh, Miller was manager in uh, October 1980. Okay, so it's not all positive. <laughs> I'm trying to claw something for our listeners here. Dave, what? come on. Like, our poor fans have just been through that second half at Watford. Let's let's give them something. If we go back to the 1960s, there were two huge wins for Burnley. They actually had two uh, yes. wins where they scored five goals. goals. They had a, a, a 5-3 win. In 1961, Ray Pointer, uh, John Connelly got a hat-trick and Jimmy McElroy, obviously the sad news today of Jimmy Jimmy McElroy passing away, he scored a penalty in that match. Uh, Burnley won 5-3. And then there was also, later on in the 1960s, 1965, uh, Burnley won 5-2. Uh, another hat-trick that time, Willie Irving scored a hat-trick, Brian O'Neill and Brian Miller, another penalty. So two wins there with two penalties. You never know, Burnley might get their uh, Premier League penalty on uh, on Sunday. At last. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be really amazing. So I think taking away from the stats then, Dave, and just looking at, I guess, your fan head on here rather than than, than what we can find in, in the books and, and the head-to-heads from previous games, 
What's your gut instinct about the, the game? Do you think the, this Claret side can go away and get something um, from it'll Fulham? It'll be tough. I think, I, I think it's always difficult playing the newly promoted sides early on in the season. I think once teams have a chance to figure it out and maybe the supporters have died down a little bit, it gets easier to play them later in the seasons. I think if you're playing them in sort of January, February, March time and onwards, it's easier. But if you're playing them, you know, the first or second match of the season, everyone's really up for it. The players are up for it. The fans are up for it. It's usually a difficult atmosphere. Fulham's obviously a smallish ground, probably similar size to uh, Turf Moor. I'm not sure what the uh, exact capacity is, but it'll be um, a really sort of cauldron atmosphere, I think, there at Fulham and will be a, a difficult game. It, every away game is. Well, we had some really good re- away results last season. We've just got to be on our A game on Sunday. Yeah, we really do. And I think the team are going to want to, to put right that performance in the second half against Watford, aren't they? They're going to want to go there and, and get a point. Uh, sorry, to get more than points. They're going to want to go yeah, and get yeah. three points. But there's certainly a few players there who, who, who've got a point to prove after that, that second half display. We don't want to go too much into the Olympiacos game, Dave, but are you feeling relatively confident about our chances of qualifying for the group um, stage? It'll be the toughest of the three games, I think. If you look at um, on paper and you look yeah, at the, their European record and their pedigree, you know, as you would expect, the games are going to get tougher as you uh, as you get on. So I think it's going to be a really, really tough game out there. But we, we've seen already that Burnley are capable of pulling up some really good performances, which we did, and get decent results against Aberdeen and Istanbul in the first legs. So we'll hopefully uh, be able to you know pull the same trick and do the same thing against um, Olympiacos on Thursday. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, last thing before we let you go till next week, you've already mentioned it once. Um, we talked about it at the opening of the show. Incredibly sad news about Jimmy Max passing today. It was an absolute legend, wasn't he? And what an absolutely lovely, lovely gentleman. Yeah, very much miss. so. I mean, uh, the thing is, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's passed down from generation to generation. None of us have seen him play. It's, you know, 55 years since he, he played for Burnley, but it's passed down from generation to generation. So, you know, parents, grandparents pass that on. It's part of the fabric of the town. The fact that he's he stayed in the town, lived there, you know, since since he moved from from Northern Ireland, it sort of hits hits people harder. I think the fact that you know he's is sort of an adopted son, really. Yeah, it really is, and I'm pretty sure that all the fans in the club will will give him a really good send off. Make sure that he knows um, when he looks down at us and, and looks at us all at Turf Morris, he uh, he knows how much he was loved by everybody. So that's everything. Thanks, Dave. We will um we'll have you back on next week as usual to look forward to future fixtures. But uh, Thank thanks you. for being on again. So, Robin, Mike, we've heard from Dave there with his um, head-to-head stats on, I guess, Olympiacos. Well, not Olympiacos, really. Greece, because we haven't played Olympiacos. But obviously, we've looked at the stats um, for Burnley versus Fulham. Just finishing off this week's podcast, let's leave Olympiacos because that's a two-legged affair and we'll look at that next week. But, Robbie, let's start with you. Predictions for Fulham? What are your hopes and what are your expectations? I'm hoping for a point, but I get beat 2-0 oh okay <laughs> okay that's fair enough <laughs> you think you think our defence hang on let's just rewind that you think our defence will concede another two you don't think that last week was just a blip uh, it's Fulham they've, they've, it's that you know new promoted newly promoted kind of bounce and swagger that they'll have at home and that's just my main yeah, concern that's true. yeah okay I can see that Mike Expectations and hopes for Fulham away. Uh, hopes for uh, an Ashley Barnes winner bouncing off in off his backside as he normally does. Expectations are a nil-nil draw. Fulham are a great attacking side, but they came up from the Championship, and I think they lack a little bit of the street smarts that Premier League teams have and Burnley has a bit of a, a street smart around it when when our defence and when our team is playing to its capability. And I think it's be a little bit like Istanbul again. I think they'll have a lot of Fulham players buzzing around, playing nice little short passes and interchanges and whatever. And then hopefully Tarky and Ben Mee just stick themselves right in front of that shot from 18 yards and it goes off for a corner. Because I think um, Fulham, yeah, they, they don't really have that Premier League know-how yet. And I think Tottenham actually kind of gave them a lesson last week. Yeah, you can, a bit like a yappy dog. Yeah, they, you know, they got the 1-1, you know, here's your chance and whatever. And then they just get shut down. And I think Fulham are a bit like that. Wolves were the same last week against Leicester. You know, you got to take your chances. And I don't see Fulham having the firepower to break us down. 
Excellent. Well, we've got a mixed bag there, listeners. That's all we have time for this week on a jam-packed show. Thanks as ever go to, well, sorry, I guess not thanks as ever, but thanks this week go to John from the Rookery End podcast for his insights on the Watford game. We thank fan panel guest Mike Landers for joining us with his pearls of wisdom. Dave Roberts, again, our stats guy for giving us our predictions for next week. Thanks to regular panellist Robbie Kopak for joining us and arguing with me again, Robbie. <laughs> and thanks to producer <laughs> thanks to producer Matt for chopping all of this together and making us sound probably a little bit better than we are. But thanks as ever go to you, the listeners, for downloading and listening to this podcast. Your support is much appreciated and we would not be here without you. I've been Natalie Bromley. This has been the Non and Ever podcast. Until next time. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.